Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. Well, again, welcome to Emmanuel Anglican, and um, uh, welcome also to uh, all who are visiting, um, and uh, whether you're here uh, for the first time or just here for a week, um, uh, we, we hope that you feel welcome. We're going to have a picnic later on today, uh, but first we're going to continue on in our series in the book of Acts. This summer we've been in a series called God's Distinct People. And uh, the focus of this series, it's in the first nine chapters of the book of Acts. And essentially what we're doing is we're seeing how God shaped the early church as it was first, it was in its embryonic stages of development. How did he put his character qualities uh, into his, his very first church in Jerusalem? Um, and we've seen how a- as people began to confess Christ for the first time, God sent his spirit so that he could make this early church look like him. And um, uh, he made them unique. He made them unique, and he made them stand out. He made them salty. And that ended up being good for Jerusalem, for Samaria, for the whole Roman Empire. Um, And it it ended up really blessing the world. And so we've seen how God um, has made his people united, uh, commissioned, empowered, fed, accountable, bold, and unrelenting. Today we're going to look at Acts 8 and see how God's people were made to be fruitful uh, through the Holy Spirit. Uh, So if you haven't already, I encourage you to turn to Acts 8 in your bulletins, in your Bibles. Barely a day goes by that I don't hear a newly released scientific study that extols the benefits of exercise. Can you relate with this? I, I'm always hearing about, you know, you know, the latest findings of like exercise is awesome for you and you stink if you don't do it. Um, so, uh, so you turn on NPR, you, you look at, you know, the top New York Times articles and you read things about how, what exercise does. It keeps disease and health problems at bay, like stroke and metabolic, uh, m- metabolic syndrome. I'm obviously not a scientist. <laughs> Type 2 diabetes keeps that at bay. Um, it improves our sleep, so we have better sleep, and that means that um, our moods increase as well from the sleep, there we go, and the exercise, um, serotonin, dopamine flow more readily when we exercise. Um, it increases our energy as well. We have more energy and more focus for the things that we care about. Um, it's good for your brain. When you exercise, you, remember, uh, you learn things faster, you remember them longer, Um, And it's also good um, for your habits as well. Um, It's easier to eat healthier when you're exercising more regularly, strangely enough. Um, And apparently, we live longer when we exercise. So, um, whatever our age, whatever our physical condition, apparently all of us are supposed to be working out. Um, So it's easy these days to wag your finger at people and at yourself you should be, how did you exercise this week? How's that going? Because if you have other problems and you're not exercising, it's your own fault. Um, and uh, as a result, I think a lot of us feel a little guilty. Hey, I'm not exercising enough. I'm not working out enough. I'm supposed to be should, 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 should. And so we feel guilty. What makes this worse is that when we imagine what it would be like to actually exercise we shift from guilt to fear. <laughs> we think about all those machines 
that are on display to the street. <laughs> and all of the bros working out. And you're like, what would it be like for me to actually try to use that machine? Hey, dude, you actually know what you're doing? <laughs> you know, are people like kind of smacking their gum looking at us like, what are you doing in this gym? Okay? Or we think about, you know, yeah, I try to take my bike in the lakefront trail and, you know, the guys in spandex are like, on your left. <laughs> and then you're like, that's my pastor. Um, so it's, it's, and then half the year it's cold and snowy. Like, what would it be like to sort of try to work out outside? And so, so we have, we're guilty that we're not doing it enough, but then when we imagine doing it, we're afraid. And what does that mean? That means that it's just demoralizing. And we just kind of, we're demoralized and end up being kind of passive, really. We, you know, it, we miss out on the joy, on the flow of exercise. And I think also, we miss out on not feeling guilty and afraid about it. Because it feels good to not be guilty and afraid about exercise. Um, for those of us who have a Christian background, and you know what, admittedly, today's message is for, is, it's for the insiders. I admit it. It's for people who grew up in the church. If you didn't grow up in the church, if you're considering the claims of Christ, consider yourself. You, you can look in on a family conversation, and hopefully I'm going to make your life better. Hopefully Jesus will make your life better as a result of this message. But we're going to talk about the guilt and the fear around evangelism. We're going to talk about it. We're just going to open up this can of worms. Because for a lot of us, the same pattern around exercise is true for us who grew up in the church, who, who want to follow Jesus about talking about our faith with people who don't follow Jesus, sharing the good news of the kingdom of God with those who don't follow Jesus, that makes us feel guilty. We should, we're not doing it enough. I, have you heard sermons about doing evangelism or teachings? You feel guilt about it? When you think about what a conversation would be, sharing your faith with someone, one of our staff members described this as... Um, uh, as um, Let's see, yes, awkward and forced conversations that don't go very well. That's what a lot of us imagine evangelism to be, awkward and forced conversations that don't go very well. Additionally, many of us have built trust uh, and, um, uh, and goodwill with our neighbors and friends that have some measure of hostility or annoyance or suspicion about the Christian faith. And so we know that if we kind of herky-jerky move our way into discussion about Jesus, about faith, especially in terms of pressing anyone towards any kind of decision about something very precious, that it's probably, there's like an 83, 87% chance it's going to make it worse. And so uh, we have guilt and fear about talking about Jesus, and that leads us to, in some ways, being demoralized and passive as it relates to sharing our faith with people who don't follow Jesus. Um, as a result, we miss out on the joy of participating in Jesus' mission that's happening all around us in all kinds of normal, human, amazing, and spiritual ways. Um, so this morning, we're going to look at a story of a very normal person whose name was Philip. He was a normal guy, okay? He was from Greece, so he probably had a unibrow like me. He was just a normal guy, okay? And the Holy Spirit, he was a new convert to Christianity, and the Holy Spirit led him 
into crazy, hostile, seemingly random situations where he was responsible to talk about Jesus. What a crazy assignment that would be. And he wasn't a superstar. Um, he was flawed and limited, just like you and me. And so he, he had this way of dealing with this crazy task that God put on him that you and I need to connect with. Um, Philip knew something about God that freed him to talk about Jesus and his kingdom. Um, and I was really encouraged by Philip's story this week. And I want you to be encouraged too. Um, in fact... Um, I want to practice the truth together this week. There's something that I got to practice the later in the week we got, and it was so doable, and it was so actionable, and it was so joyful um, that I want to share it with you and invite you to experiment with me in the next week. We need to learn something about God that's going to free up our conversations about God. And, and it would be good for us to practice it as well in ways that would be good for Chicago, good for our neighbors. Let's look at Acts 8. And I'll just read the first few verses. And I want you to imagine yourself, put yourself in Philip's shoes. Put yourself in his story. Acts 8.1 says this, And Saul approved of his execution. His execution meaning Stephen's execution. Stephen was Philip's friend. He was his co-worker. They were in the first class of deacons together in the early church. You, you were like raised up with him. You're from the same area. There's so much that would associate you two together. And you just saw him get stoned to death because of the way he talked about Jesus. If anything would put fear in my heart, it would be watching someone that I deeply associate with and am friends with, who has in sense the same job as me, getting stoned to death because of his ministry. Um, but there it was. There was a, a man named Saul, a violent man, who was seeking to put men and women in prison and death that was overseeing this execution. So there was an anti-Christian surge in Jerusalem. It, there was a wave of hatred and frustration against the Christian church because of what they believed about Jesus. And the enemies of the church in Stephen's death had just scored a major victory, and they were not gracious in their victory. It wasn't like, hey, you know what? <sighs> Stephen died, and it's one of those things where, like, okay, maybe we should just leave the church alone. Maybe they pay, maybe they see their ways, and let's just calm down. No, 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 no. They did not calm down. They, they ratcheted up the intensity when they had the victory. And no, the Christians really are to blame, and we need to make them pay. Now, you're Philip. What do you do? You can't apparently contextualize your way out of this. You can't be winsome enough. You can't explain, hey, if only we'll be reasonable here and you and I can have a conversation. There was no conversation anymore. It was over in Jerusalem. It says that in verse 2, Stephen was buried and they lamented his death. Saul is ravaging the church, entering house after house and committing them to prison. And sorry, back to verse 1. All were scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And if you're Philip, you're not one of the apostles. You're on the run. You are running. You're running for your life. And apparently, you are running for a new ministry assignment. It gets very interesting. Verse 5, here's what happens to Philip. Philip went down to the city of Samaria, Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. 
Um, now, this is crazy. This is crazy because Philip wanders into the land of outcasts. Philip um, is not supposed to be in Samaria because Jews don't associate with Samaritans and vice versa. They hated each other. Uh, there was um, bad blood, black history. There was unresolved conflicts about race and religion. You're in the wrong neighborhood, bro. What are you doing here? There's no ministry to be had here. You're not a native Samaritan. You're a Jew. It's worse. But he proclaimed to them the Christ. Uh, better translated, the Messiah. He, he basically went to their local synagogue where everyone was gathering, and he said, I have some amazing news to share with you. The Messiah, the Christ, the King that you've been waiting for, that the Torah points to, because they read the Torah, he's come. He's here. In fact, he can even deliver you now. He can minister to you now. He can bring the deliverance that you've prayed for now. Crazy enough, the Samaritans heard the message and they responded to it. Um, verses 6 through 8 talk about people paying attention to him. And um, they didn't stone him. They watched the signs that Jesus was doing through him. And unclean spirits came out. And there was much joy in that city. It was almost as if Jesus' words in Luke 4 when he said, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me to, 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 to open the eyes of the blind, to proclaim liberty to the captives. Um, it was happening through Philip in a crazy place. Healings, conversions, and joy. Now here's the part where, all, where you and me, we grew up in church, we look at that and go, yeah, see, Philip was just, he just went for it. And maybe I should just go for it. And maybe that's what God is waiting for. I'm, I'm, I'm the kind of the bottleneck here. <laughs> Friends, don't compare Philip in Samaria with you. Compare Philip in Samaria with Philip in Jerusalem. He didn't do much work in Jerusalem. There's very little that he was able to do. He had to run from Jerusalem. People in Jerusalem weren't ready to hear the gospel. People in Samaria were. God took him from Jerusalem to Samaria and said, do some ministry here. Let's, in fact, let this in some ways equal each other out. Philip is an instrument in the hands of God. And so are we. So are we. This shouldn't move us to guilt. This should move us to curiosity about how Philip was operating. And it is the third movement in Acts 8 where it really gets interesting, where we can really learn from what Philip knew about God that we need to practice in and know and live into if we are going to have the kind of ministry in Chicago that we're called to. Uh, because what Philip knew about God is still true. In 2015, in Chicago, in Uptown, in your life, I don't care what you do for a living or don't do for a living. Um, it's a truth about God that will liberate us to share God's love when we feel vulnerable, guilty, anxious, or like a failure before God. Skipping to Acts 8.26. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went, and there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship. Verse 28, and was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join his chariot. 
Okay, here we have two men. Both are on a spiritual pilgrimage. Don't miss this. One person is an Ethiopian eunuch. He's a, he's a high-ranking Ethiopian who has converted to Judaism because he's hungry for God. He's looking for God. He wants to find God. His heart is open to God. We also have Philip. And Philip has met God through Christ, and his heart's open to God too. He's just going where the Spirit tells him to go. And inasmuch as Uber matches up drivers and passengers, the Holy Spirit seems to be matching up person who's seeking God and person who can share God and brings them together. Um, notice with me the non-threatening approach of Philip. The, Lord, the Spirit of the Lord tells him, go over to that chariot. So Philip goes over and stands next to the chariot. And what does Philip begin with? He begins with an honest question. Acts 8.30. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah, the prophet. So he's paying attention. He's watching the details of this person's life. And in response to those details that he's sensitive to, he asks an insightful question. Do you understand what you are reading? Um, questions open people up and, and help us understand where someone's at. Now notice the Ethiopian, in response to this question, gives Philip permission to come closer. That permission is everything. That permission allows Philip to have a conversation with the Ethiopian. The Ethiopian invites him onto his empty seat next to him. Hey, come on up here and sit next to me. There's room for you. Sit down. Let's talk about this because I'm curious and I, for some reason, trust you. Um, it is not one-sided. And then the Ethiopian uh, shows him, hey, I'm reading Isaiah 53 of all the passages. And he's reading about the suffering servant and it's drawing him in and he wants to know who this is. And so Philip, with the Ethiopian eunuch's permission, shares about Jesus, the suffering servant, taking on his burdens. He opens the scripture and he explains that, that the suffering servant is king, amazingly so. And he's your king, and he's your suffering servant, and you can live in his kingdom, and you can have joy, and you can have peace with God right now. And so the Ethiopian says, hey, all right, I believe, let's get baptized, let's, let's get down here, and you can just baptize me, and he's baptized. And then, similar to Uber, Philip is long gone, except he goes faster than an Uber car can go. Um, and the Ethiopian goes on his way rejoicing. Now here's the liberating truth about God that Philip was operating in that you and I can operate in as well. If you miss everything else from the sermon, I want you to hear this. The Holy Spirit of God has the power to transform our passive guilt about evangelism into active love for a real person. The Holy Spirit of God has the power to transform our vague guilt about evangelism into an act of love for a real flesh and blood individual person. Um, once that happens, evangelism and love can be an inseparable reality for you and me. Can you imagine what that would be like for evangelism and love to just be this inner, this 
thing that you, you cannot separate these two realities. They're so woven together in a beautiful way. It would, be, it would be wrong, actually, to rip them apart. So incidentally, if you don't love someone, please stay away from them. Evangelism and love can go together. The Lord can give us both. They can transform this vague guilt into a real love for a real person or persons. Um, so here's a way that this can work. Here's a way for us to practice this. Let's say you're like, you know what? I don't feel much love in my heart for people in general, whether they're Christians or not. I don't, I don't have a burning love for people. I'm barely making it. I'm barely surviving with my responsibilities. Here's something that I began to try that I would want to invite you to try. And that is this. For the next five days, I want to invite you to pray for five minutes a day that God would put love in your heart for someone who has an empty seat next to them. Five minutes a day for five days. Pray, Lord Jesus, would you give me the same love through your Holy Spirit that you gave to Philip and show me an empty seat where I can sit and have a conversation. Um, there are empty seats everywhere in Chicago. Did you know that? I heard a study recently, another study, that 46% of meals now are eaten alone. 46% of meals consumed in the United States are eaten by an individual. I would imagine that in a city, that number would go up. A lot of us lead very individualistic lives. People are eating alone. People are commuting alone. 24% of people live by themselves. They are lonely. We have a lot of nursing homes in Chicago, many of them in Uptown. Most people who live in a convalescent home never receive a single visitor in their lifetime. There are so many empty seats. In some cases, it's not a physical seat. It's personal space. It's someone that just gets ignored because they're annoying. It's someone who is hungry for a conversation. And they're looking to make eye contact. They're looking for, for someone who just cares about them. There are empty seats everywhere. And the Holy Spirit is ministering Jesus everywhere. The shining face of Christ is not only shining before us. Jesus is moving around Chicago all the time. And he's inviting, he's waiting for us to follow him into conversations, some of which will be about Jesus, and some of, it, some of which will just be a demonstration of the love of Jesus. Asking people about their lives, asking people about their kids, their jobs, showing up with a meal, with a pie, showing up with interest, showing up with conversation, not showing up with an agenda where you're ramming people through a logical series of steps. That will be alienating, and that is alienating in the USA and in Chicago. Ramming people through a, through a logical series of steps will alienate people, but showing them the love of Christ will not. I want to tell you about a time where this happened to me. And I'm going to tell you, in all honesty, that I am not a skilled evangelist. I am not. And I felt bad about that for many years. So I told you last week about our move to D.C. back in 2008. Let me tell you what happened right after we moved. God provided a job. It looked, it felt very random. Okay, I, I ended up working for a policy research center. And it was great, but I was also on the bottom of the totem pole. So uh, I was, a month after we moved, I was sitting at a desk, 8 to 5, every day, answering phones, ordering office supplies for people, and occasionally doing research, getting interrupted all the time because my desk was public and it was, all the employees had to pass by me. And so um, 
I felt trapped. I felt powerless. I felt out of my league, out of my element. And I felt like, man, I'm not really operating in my gifts here. This isn't really a good fit for me. And what was so interesting was that after a few weeks, after a few months, I realized this is an empty seat the Lord has called me to sit in. And as a result, people just started to randomly share their spiritual questions, their spiritual longings. Um, I remember one person was like, she she sat down very high-ranking in government before she came to work for this institute. She's like, yeah, I grew up in the church. Remember uh, a big going to a, a big meal that it was like the Girl Scouts or something that the church was hosting. Church was hosting this big meal for us. A man came in, hungry. Um, it, 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 he asked for a meal. It was very hard for him to ask. We could all see it, hat in hand, asked for a meal. And the director said, no, sent him away. And she's like, we were all ready to give him our meals. We wanted him to, and, and the director said, no, you may not give him your meal. And he walked out the door. And she said, you know what? I pray, and I'm a spiritual person, but I have no interest in organized religion. A very important conversation to have. Very important that she have that conversation with someone who is committed to the church. Another person um, came up, and she's like, yeah, what's up with all that scary language in Revelation? That scares me. And we talked for a little bit about it, then she went on her way. (laughs) One night I was working late. Some guy comes by. uh, He had become a friend of mine over the months, and he's like, ah. I've been, I ha- I'm having this personal problem. It's really scaring me. Can you just, I know you pray. Can you talk to the big man upstairs? Sure. Okay. Um, so I was invited into conversations. And you know what? Those conversations led to more conversations, and some of which were, hey, opening the scriptures and talking about Jesus and the resurrection. It was crazy. I would have never, I could have never planned it. I was just a, I was just sitting in an empty chair and it was, happened to be the one that the Lord had put me in. There was no big scheme, but we had very rich and great conversations about faith and about Jesus and his kingdom. So let's start there. Let's start with praying that the Lord would put us in the empty seat that has our name on it. Let's start with praying that God would fill us with his love. Can you imagine if we all did this? Can you imagine what kind of conversations we'd have as a community with people outside, people who have no interest in coming to church on a Sunday morning? I'm beginning to pray now that the Lord provides these kinds of conversations for you that would increase your own joy in Jesus and his kingdom. And I believe that just as the Holy Spirit moved in Samaria and to the ends of the earth, he will move in Chicago and he will move in Uptown. And I'm praying this all in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's all stand and confess our faith in the words of the Nicene Creed.